Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. We're good. Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name is Jono. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure and a privilege to get to speak uh, to you, with you this morning. I'm going to get straight into it because I've got more pages of notes than I usually do, um, which is, it just means that it's going to be even greater than usual. Yeah, it's only one more page of notes. So I'll just, I already speak quite fast. Has anyone noticed that? Yeah, today I'm going to speak slower. Um, so we'll be, no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. God's going to be with us. But um, today I, I, we're concluding our series, Colliding Worlds. Who's been with us for some of that series? Yeah, it's good. Uh, it's been great to hear people enjoying it. It's been great to hear of it promoting some, some interesting discussion in, in e-groups and, uh, and around the place. If you haven't been with us and, and you're like, man, this is an interesting sermon, what was the rest? Uh, it is all up on SoundCloud or uh, if you've got a podcast app on a device, if you just search for Equippers Church, Christchurch, you should find us. Uh, and, and we've got some, some back catalog there that you can listen in on. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think probably three weeks ago, I started this series talking about demons. Who was here for that? It was a good time, right? It's always a good time when we talk about demons in church. Uh, and, and we talked about the fact that we, we live in, in colliding worlds, that the spiritual world is colliding with our here and now practical physical world, that they're not distinct, that we don't think that they're separated, but that they're, they're intermingled, that spiritual forces are real, but that we need to strike a balance between skepticism and superstition. Yeah, we remember that? We talked about the fact that, that we need both deliverance and discipleship, surgery and physiotherapy, that we, it's not too much of one or too much of the other, but, but that there's a balance in both. And, and I was thinking, you know, if we started talking about demons, which was fun, right? The, the other kind of hot topic, if we're talking about spiritual things, I think is hell. Right, so I was like, let's just go two for two. Let's do, let's do both the hardest topics I can think about. We talked about money a few weeks before that. I was like, let's just get all out of the way. Rest of the year will be a breeze. We'll be having fun uh, talking about all of the, the easy things in the Bible. There's less easy things in the Bible than you think when you start reading it. But today, I'm going to talk about hell. Who's excited? Yeah, we're like, yeah, I love, I love hell. Um, it's odd. But I reckon if you, if you think about spiritual things, hell and demons are kind of the two hot topics. If you tell people that you're a person of faith, they're the two things that people are like, oh, what do you think about this? How does, how does this work? So uh, if I was to give today a title, which I did, I like it when preachers say that, right? Like if I was to give today a title, you, you didn't? No, no, I did. I did. Uh, I've titled today, What the Hell? It's the only time in church I'm ever going to get to say that, right? Uh, and, and so why don't you, after I've said that, why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray more for me. More for me than anything else. Titling that is there's some concerns. Uh, God, we thank you so much for this time together. I uh, thank you that, that as we lean into to your word, as we, as we go into your scripture, that your word never returns void. God, I pray as we, as we examine this, this topic that, that is, is weighty and contentious, that today it wouldn't be my words or my ideas, but, but that you would speak. God, that your voice would go out, that it would land in our hearts. God, that, that even as we talk about something that might be scary, that, that some of us might not want to lean into, God, that we would be encouraged and edified. God, that you would lift us up, point us towards our eternal future, that we would know that we are loved, that we are called, that you are with us in this room. God, we thank you that your presence is here. I pray that it would be moving. God, that you would cover, uh, yeah, you would just cover us, God. God, where we come in with, with concerns or baggage, you would be with us in it. That, that your healing presence would be here in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I want to start by saying, as we talk about, you know, one of the, the happiest topics on, on the, the church kind of topic list, when you think of heaven and hell, I wonder what do you think of? Yeah, maybe even close your eyes, if that's not too scary for you. Some people close their eyes, like, ah, open my eyes again, don't want to think about that, right? But if you close your eyes, what do you think about when you think, if I say heaven and hell, what kind of pictures come to mind? I wonder if, if maybe it's something a little bit like this. Not that, that's my topic. This. There we go, right? You're like, I don't know what that is, John. It's very far away. Uh, it's very far away because I didn't want to zoom in on it too much because it's quite an intense picture, right? This is the, the last judgment. There's some butts in there. I was like, let's not have the butts too big on the screen. It's in the Sistine Chapel. So I figure if they can have it there, we can have it here, right? It's, uh, it's kosher for church. But it's the last judgment. It's a fresco pi- uh, painted by, by Michelangelo. And, and it's a depiction of, of heaven and hell, of the last days. In the middle there, you've got Jesus on, on his, uh, my right, your left is Mary. She's kind of under his armpit, interesting place for her to be. Uh, and, and there, there, up the top is, is heaven, um, obviously. And, and down the bottom is, is hell. You've actually you've got some other stuff going on. It, it's a pretty intense picture, right? Like, that's not what I thought of when I, I thought of heaven and hell. But I think probably what you thought of is heavily influenced by this, right? And, and the reason that I haven't got it any, any bigger is because is it's, it's fairly gnarly, especially the bottom portion, right? The bottom portion, you've got like a, a demon and an angel playing tug of war with a person. Interesting, right? Like, no, he's coming my way. No, he's coming my way. I don't remember reading that in the Bible, but anyway. Uh, you, you've got a demon pulling someone down and, and a, an angel's like beating their hands as they're trying to hold on. They're like, no, I don't want to go to hell. The angel's like, you have to. It's intense. And then down, down bottom, bottom right here, my, my right, your left, you've actually got um, the ferryman from Greek mythology. Not in the Bible anywhere. Just, just there, just hanging out. Michelangelo was like, oh, there's a bit of empty space. Chucking Soren, the ferryman. Why not, right? It's a fun time. See, I wonder when we think of heaven and hell, if, if maybe we, we imagine especially hell as this subterranean chamber of horrors, if some of our thinking, some of the images that we get aren't based more in Greek mythology and Renaissance paintings than they are in the Bible. That, that maybe some of the understanding that we have when we think about heaven and hell, if we think about clouds and pitchforks, is potentially not so biblical. And I want to be very clear at the start, before anyone's like, I think he's going to talk about universalism. I'm not talking about universalism. I want to be very, very clear. When we talk about heaven, when Jesus talked about heaven, he talked about heaven as a present reality and a future eventuality. Let me say it this way. Heaven is true here. We can be a part of establishing the kingdom of heaven here and now, and it can be occupied with people. That this would be something of heaven on earth as we gather together. But heaven is also true then and there in eternity, and it is occupied with people. And in the same way, hell can be a present reality. There can be experiences on earth in which hell touches earth, in which something of the worst of the world and spirituality manifests itself. And it is also a future eventuality. That hell can be here and now and it can be occupied with people. And unfortunately, hell is true then and there and it is occupied with people. But we will do our darndest to make sure it's not. Yeah, that that actually the primary emphasis of Jesus' teachings when he taught on hell was not how to go to heaven someday. Our faith is not, maybe contrary to, to popular belief and, and experience, a get to heaven card. Or, or maybe if we're honest, as we think of it, more of like a get out of hell free sort of card. But our faith is not a cosmic waiting room, waiting on a, on a divine Sunday. But we, we, we don't say, hey, come to faith and then wait till you die and it's going to get real good. 
right? Like you pray the prayer and you're like, awesome. Now just hang in there and hopefully you'll die real soon. Yeah, that's what we do. We, when we say, hey, if you raised your hand, you know, uh, let us know and we'll have to have a conversation with you after the service. What I do is I walk up to you and I say, all right, I'm praying you die as soon as possible. It's not what happens. Because we're not all about just one day getting to heaven. We actually believe that God is doing something here and now. If it's all just about waiting for heaven, then why are we here? Let's go buy a parcel of land out near Ashburton and enclave ourselves in Equipper's land. Seriously, that's where the theology ends up. If you believe all we're about is waiting for our salvation, then there's no reason to do anything here and now. But instead, Jesus spoke about how we can bring heaven to earth. Right, that we're advancing the kingdom and we're doing that by seeing people come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and bringing something of heaven to earth now. Right, as Shane Willard puts it, and, and I've rated some of his material for this, but, but one of the best ways to do that is to stop bringing hell to earth. One of the best ways to advance the kingdom is simply to stop advancing the opposite. And so if we're in this series of, of colliding worlds, as we conclude this, what I want to do today is try and give a biblical overview of hell. Right? Initially, it was going to be a biblical overview of heaven and hell, and, and then it got to a lot of pages. I was like, that's probably more than we can do in one sermon. So someday we'll do a biblical overview of heaven, but more interesting today, I thought, uh, was, was hell. Right? We're going to go to shout. We'll feel great next week. So we'll just we'll lean into a little bit, and then it'll be, it'll be like an ice bath. Yeah, anyone ever done those? You're, kinda, you're in the warm. for Anyway, it doesn't matter. So... I figure, let's, uh, let's understand what the Bible means when, when it speaks about hell. And I think that we'll find that it very much collides with our here and now. A, a quick kind of primer on metaphor before we jump in. The Bible uses metaphor. Some of you might be saying, well, Jono, you don't believe the Bible is true? No, no, no. I said the Bible uses metaphor. I didn't say the Bible is not true, right? Those are two different things, but sometimes we conflate them. Yeah? For, for example, uh, a metaphor is not a lie. A metaphor is a way of describing something to get it a larger Truth. For example, in, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 21, it said that the street of the new Jerusalem, the new heaven come to earth, is pure gold, transparent as glass. Now, when we say this, do we mean that the street is going to be made of literal gold? Maybe, right? Don't really know. But if all we take from it is that the streets in heaven are going to be really shiny and, and you're going to have to wear grippy shoes because it might be quite slippery, we're kind of missing the point. Instead, the larger truth that's being delivered in a statement like this is in heaven, something that is considered so precious here that we would only have it on jewelry and, and in some electronics now, right? It's changing its usage. But, but something that is, is super precious in heaven is going to be commonplace. So commonplace that it's going to be the very thing that paves the streets that we walk on. See, if we read Revelation 21, 21, and all we take from it is this literal view of, oh, I guess the streets in heaven are going to be really shiny. I'm going to need some sunglasses so I don't get sunstruck while I'm walking around heaven. We miss the point that instead it's talking about the fact that, that in heaven, that which is precious here will be mundane in comparison. And we get this. We use metaphor all the time in everyday life, don't we? Like if you, if you read the newspaper, for example, and it says, the beehive released a statement, no one is like, it's not the press. Tim, the bee, talking building. 
The beehive, the building where they got parliament, it's talking, it released a statement. What's going on? We know, no, we know, right? We're like, no, that means the people in the beehive, the collective group that we ascribe as the beehive, right? The ninth floor, whatever it might be, they've released a statement. No one's like this talking building. So we get it everywhere else in life. We just sometimes like to put on these, these literalism blinders when we read the Bible. So I just want to say that, that there is metaphor in the Bible. It doesn't mean that it's not true, but if we read it as only literal, sometimes we are in danger of missing the full truth that the text is attempting to represent. We can discuss that afterwards if you like. I profoundly disagree. That, that's all good. We can chat, right? But so primer on metaphor out of the way. Let's talk about hell, yeah? That'll keep you interested. Get you on the edge of your seat. Let's talk about hell. And, and speaking of interest, I think as Christians, we have this bad inclination when we start talking about hell, we as people of faith kind of check out, if we're being honest. Like hell, well, my future's non-smoking, so I guess this isn't me, right? It was a good Bible joke. Like, hell, I'm not going there. So I'm, I know it's scary and I don't want to go there. And there's some, some pitchforks and, 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 and some flames and maybe some dismemberment. I don't know. I'm not listening. Sounds scary. I'm going to heaven. There is a harp in my future and some lovely clouds. So I'm just going to tune out. But it's interesting because actually every time Jesus says the word hell, which he says 18 different times, he's talking to followers of Christ. Right, so if every time Jesus says hell, he's talking to followers of Christ, more than that, 15 of the 18 times, so that's 87% of the time that Jesus says hell, he was talking about or at least grounding what he was saying in now. Right, so, so that would mean that for us, both as followers of Christ and for our here and now, at least according to Jesus anyway, hell is a very important topic. Who's ready for some fun words? Yeah, you must have known if we were talking about hell, I was going to break out some words. I've got four fun words for you today. Uh, and they're the four different words that are translated hell in the Bible. The first word is the word sheol. Now, sheol is, is the only Hebrew word that we have for hell in the Bible. Uh, and it's, it's usually translated the grave, the pit, or death. Uh, and it's translated that way because ancient Hebrews didn't actually have an understanding of hell as, as we do now. Hell for them, or sheol for them, wasn't hell, was, was just the place that everyone went when they died. Everyone went there and you waited for the day of the Lord, for the final judgment when God was going to come and, and things were going to change. And so that was Sheol, plain and simple. It was the, the eternal waiting place, waiting on the day of the Lord. It was the grave, the pit, or death. The, the second word used in the Bible for, for hell is this word, tartaro. And, and tartaro is a, is a Greek word, and it's actually a, a verb. It's only used one time in the Bible, but its implications are massive, right? We've taken it and we've really run with it. Uh, it's used once in 2 Peter chapter 2, and it's actually used by Peter referencing an established idea in Greek mythology. Tartaro is actually the verb for Tartarus. Stay with me, it, it makes sense. Tartarus is a place. It's a place in Greek mythology that Zeus made for the disobedient angels, the fallen angels, you could say. Someone's like, oh, that sounds like familiar language. Right, and these fallen angels who are, who are being mischievous and causing havoc, Zeus makes Tartarus and he puts them into Tartarus, that it's, it's basically jail for bad angels. And so Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, he uses it in the context of God's power as an example, an analogy, saying this is something you understand about a fake God, let me apply it about the real God. Right? He says in 2 Peter chapter 2, if God could show his power by throwing spiritual forces into Tartarus, that's the, the Tartaro is the act of throwing them into Tartarus, how much more could God show his power over what's oppressing you? 
right? Peter is saying it's an example of God's power over spiritual forces. But it's from this idea that there are angels locked up in hell that Renaissance artists kind of ran with the idea. And, and eventually we end up with, with paintings of demons and such, dismembering people when you get little men with red pitchforks, right? This is where this idea comes from. It's from this idea that that, that uh, humans and fallen angels are locked up in the same place, but that's not necessarily what the text says when it talks about it. You're kind of like, oh, well, what does the text say then, Jono? Because that was a lot of my comprehension of what hell was, was pitchforks and, and stabbing people and everyone locked up in the same place. Right, well, the, the next word, if, if, if we're looking through it, is this word, and this is where it gets interesting, and we'll come back to this word, is the word Hades. Right, someone's like, oh, I know Hades, right? That's the bad guy from Hercules. He's got the blue flames on his head, and when he gets really angry, it turns red. Anyone know what I mean? Yeah, great movie, Hercules. If you haven't watched it, you know, you check it out. Animated Adventure, Pegasus, some amazing songs. Uh, anyway, like I mentioned, Jesus talks about hell 18 times, right? And, and three of the times that he talks about hell, he uses the word Hades, and, and Hades is what we think of when we think of hell. H- Hades is the, the unseen place. It was the hell of the grave. It's the Greek equivalent of, of Sheol, but with much more going on. And it's the hell that you go to after you die. I'm not speaking about you, right? I'm just the general. I'm not declaring that over your life. Don't worry. But this is the hell that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, gets, gets thrown into the lake of fire. This is the reality of death apart from God. The fourth and final word that Jesus uses, and this is the other 15 times he talks about hell, is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is interesting because it was an actual place in Jerusalem. It's also called in the Bible the Valley of Hinnom, and it's southwest of Jerusalem. And Gehenna is infamous to, to a Jewish audience because of what happens in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3. Can I give you a, a brief bit of some interesting Jewish history? Is that all right? It's good. All right, there, there was a king of, of Judah named Ahaz. And Ahaz was not a nice king, was not a nice person. If we put up the scripture, you see there that one of the main things that Ahaz did in his rule was he thought it was a great idea to establish child sacrifice as practice in Jerusalem. Interesting choice, right? And so he makes it the, the practice within Jerusalem, within the, 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 for the people of Judah, to sacrifice children to the god Moloch, the Canaanite god Moloch. Here's a, a depiction of what it looks like. Uh, I was going to go through and tell you about this, but Em told me that I can't because it's too gory. So if you want to know the gory details, I can tell you after the service. Suffice to say, it was not a fun time. And, and, and so Ahaz establishes this practice of child sacrifice within the people of, of Judah. And it goes on for a few generations until Ahaz's great-great-grandson, Josiah, eliminates it, right? He gets rid of it, which can we just give a quick clap for Josiah? Very appreciative of that, right? And and, and he eliminates it, but then he has a problem because this place, Gehenna, for about 100 years has been used to sacrifice children. It's had this big old giant god of Moloch there, and they've been doing horrible things. And so he's like, hey, look, we've knocked it down. We've, we've gotten rid of the, the altar to Moloch. No more child sacrifices. Who wants to come live in Gehenna? Everyone's like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass. Right? Like, I don't think, who knows what the fun in my backyard. I don't think I want to live in the place where we used to sacrifice children. I'll just, I'll leave that, thanks. So no one's living there. Like, we've got this land. It's just outside Jerusalem. What are we going to do with it? Oh, we'll turn it into a rubbish dump. So they decide to turn it into the town dump. They start putting all of their, their waste there. Now, I don't know if you've, if you've ever been to a rubbish dump. Quick show of hands, who's been to a rubbish dump? 
you know, I should hope all of us, right? Otherwise, you know, you've got to know where your stuff's going. But who's been not just to a, we've got nice rubbish dumps now. Would you agree? Like, they're, they're beautiful. They're, well, uh, beautiful is probably an overstatement. But who's ever been to an old school rubbish dump? Like, you don't have the nice, you don't split out the things. You don't have the, you know, things going other places. It's just a big pile of trash. Yeah? Anyone ever been there? Great fun. We used to have one in Paraparaumu. Uh, for entertainment, you would go there and you would try and find the rats. And you would whack them with golf, uh, golf clubs. That was, that was what we did for a good time in Paraparumu back in the day, because um, we had an old school rubbish dump. And, and rubbish dumps stink, yeah? We would agree. Rubbish dumps stink. We don't put our waste, I mean like bodily waste, I don't need to say any more, I don't think, on our rubbish dump. So imagine how much worse this rubbish dump would stink, yeah? So, so what the people did is they're like, hey, we've got this rubbish dump. It's kind of sitting southwest of Jerusalem. The wind is just blowing this atrocious smell over the city. Like, this is bad. And so they came up with an ingenious idea, and I want to share this with you because we're about equipping you for life, yeah? If you ever find yourself in gastrointestinal distress, and you need to use the bathroom, and there is a lingering odor, anyone ever been, no, <laughs> anyone ever been in that situation? Yeah, this morning, it was horrible, just outside. If you find yourself in that situation, you spray the air freshener, and it just, it doesn't, sometimes the air freshener mingles with the smell, and you're like, this is worse now, we don't need to go there, right? But something you can do is you can light a match, right? And if you leave the match to burn for a few seconds and then waft it out, the smell of the match actually is strong enough that it overpowers the other odors. Did, any, did anyone know that? No, if you didn't know it, there you go. Now, have a little match book in your bathroom, right? If something unfortunate happens, just light a match and, and no one will ever be the wiser. Equipping you for life, right? Marriage is stronger because of that one piece of advice. So uh, we're, we're about it, right? And so they figured, actually, if we light the garbage dump on fire, it smells a whole lot better. So they do. They light the garbage dump on fire. And then what happens is, is in Jerusalem, if you couldn't afford to, to, to bury your loved one in a tomb, which was expensive, you had to dispose of the body somehow. So there were these big fires in Gehenna, and they would bring the body to the fires of Gehenna, put the body on the fires of Gehenna as, as like a funeral pyre. It would, you would cremate your dead in Gehenna. And so Gehenna was a place where the fires were always burning, and there was weeping because people were standing around crying about the fact that their loved ones had died. And then finally, because it was a rubbish dump, you had all of this waste there, that the local animals, the wildlife, would come around and would, would eat the waste on the rubbish dump, right? And so you would have wolves and foxes and dogs and all kinds of things coming and, and scavenging for food everywhere, and they'd be fighting and they'd bite each other and they'd be barking. And so because of this, the people of Jerusalem would call Gehenna the place where the fire doesn't die and there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if you've read your Bible, you might be like, oh, that statement sounds kind of familiar. I feel like we've, we've used that a couple of times before because what Jesus did when he spoke about hell is he didn't usually use the word Hades, which he could have because he used it. He often used the word Gehenna or describes Gehenna, bringing to mind for the people a real place for his listeners and a horrible history. And so the question surely that rises out of that is why? Like, why isn't he talking about Hades? Why isn't he talking about clear-cut eternity? Did Jesus not care about our eternity? Did Jesus not believe in hell? Oh, well, he, he died for our salvation. He went to hell, raided hell, you know, defeated death and hell. So I think that he probably believed in hell. I think that the only reason we have any option other than hell is because of what he did on the cross. Yeah, I think we'd agree. 
So, so surely it's not that he's denying the existence of Hades or hell or, or this potential eventuality for our eternity, but something else is going on here. Maybe Jesus is instead saying by rooting his example of hell in real present day situations that our eternal destiny is rooted in our current reality. In fact, of the three times that Jesus says Hades, maybe the most significant is when he talks about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We'll go back to this in a moment, but maybe this idea of of Jesus believing that our eternal destiny is rooted in our current reality is why he teaches us to pray something like, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't it interesting that nowhere in the Lord's prayer does, does he say, pray, God, please save me from eternal damnation. Right? Sure, there's deliver us from, from the evil one, but even that has a current application. There's no just, hey, pray this prayer and then wait around for a little while and one day you'll get to go to heaven. Instead, it's very much grounded in here and now. It would seem that Jesus is implying that our, our faith isn't just focused on eternity, but establishing the kingdom of heaven here and now. And, and that maybe a fear-based, Hades-avoiding relationship with God will fail that maybe it's inclined to become religious works and arrogance devoid of faith and relationship, which is why Jesus speaks to the hell we're establishing now because it directly influences our eternal future. Not in a works way, not in a losing our salvation way, but but in a real here and now way. Turn with me if you have your Bibles uh, to what I think is is Jesus' best explanation of it and the best that that I can do definitely is reading the words of Jesus. Uh, In Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, this is the parable of the rich man, And Lazarus. And like I said, this is one of the three times that Jesus uses the word Hades, and it's the only time that he uses it in relation to someone going there. Right? So if we're trying to understand colliding worlds, if we're trying to understand hell here and now, now and hell then and there, Gehenna and Hades, then I think this is a very important parable for us. Would you agree? It's good. Who's ready to read a story? It gets lighter from here on out marginally. Uh, Turn with me, it says, uh, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, this is the parable of the rich man in Hades. It says this, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will be they convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. It's a confusing story, right? I don't think anyone reads it on a first reading and is like, yeah, 
No, I think I got all of that. Makes sense to me. Moving on to the next parable, right? There are some layers in here. First of all, there's two characters. I don't know if you picked that up. Well, there's three, including Abraham, but we're focusing on the rich man and Lazarus. Right, and so there's, there's two characters, the rich man and a poor man. And one of the most uh, amazing things that commentators have, have been pointing out for years is one of the remarkable features of this parable is this is the only parable that Jesus tells to feature a character with a name. Right, Lazarus, he's the only person in any of Jesus' parables who has a name. The rest of Jesus' parables, no one has a proper name assigned to them except for this poor man who is named Lazarus. So in this story, you have a nameless man and a named character, the rich man and Lazarus. And the contrast is deliberate, right? Jesus is doing this intentionally. So what does it mean? For a Jewish audience, they would understand that, that in Israel at this time when Jesus is telling the story, that the rich man would not have been a pagan or an atheist, This rich man would not have been someone who did not practice the law. The rich man would have believed in the God of the Bible. He would have prayed to the God of the Bible. He would have obeyed the laws of the God of the Bible. But he is in hell without a name. And they say, why? This is exacerbated by the fact that for the Jewish audience hearing the story, he's a rich man. He's blessed. That means that he's good. If you're rich and you're blessed, it's because you've done good things. And if you're poor and and the implication is Lazarus might have had some sort of disease like leprosy, that's a physical representation of your sin. He's a bad person. The bad person is in hell. Sorry, the bad person is in heaven. And the good person, the blessed person, the rich person is is in hell. This is not how the Jewish audience understands that this should work. And Abraham says, child, remember that during your lifetime, you received your good things to the rich man. Which can sound like you got, you know, your share of good luck when you were alive, ran out, now you're in hell. Which is not how we understand that just if you're like, okay, good luck runs out, then I go to hell. That's not what we're saying, right? It's poor theology. And that's not what Jesus is saying here either. Instead, what he's saying to the, to, the, to the rich man, what Abraham is saying, what Jesus is saying through Abraham, is your life was about your good things. He's saying to this rich man, this rich man had his good things. It's, it's past tense, status and wealth were the basis for his identity, right? And now that his status and his wealth are gone, there is no him left. He was a rich man or he was nothing. So he has no identity, it's gone. That's why Lazarus has a name and the rich man doesn't. It's to create that distinction. This is Lazarus, he has an identity. This is the rich man All he was was the things he could amass. He put his identity in that, and now that it is gone, all he is is what he was. See, Soren Kierkegaard, who's a great Danish philosopher, he wrote a book, uh, which if you're in for an intense book, it's called The Sickness Unto Death. Uh, And in it, he wrestles with the definition of sin. And he defines sin as building your identity on anything but God. He acknowledges that the traditional definition of sin is is breaking God's law, is not upholding the law. But he says that that doesn't quite meet the mark. It doesn't go far enough. And the reason that he gives for, for expanding the definition of sin from breaking the law to building your identity on anything but God is because of the Pharisees. right? Because the Pharisees were the best at following the law. They were the best at upholding it, and yet they're lost, Matthew 23. Because the Pharisees, they serve as their own Savior and Lord because they're seeking to earn their own salvation, right? They're trying to put God in a position where because they are so good, because they uphold the law so well, God has to bless them. 
He has to answer their prayers. He has to give them a good life. He has to take them to heaven. Right? And they end up, the Pharisees, building their identity not on God, but on their moral performance. And as a result, it destroys their character. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. Right? Pretty on the outside, beautiful on the outside, but, but dead inside. Because they build their identity on moralism and it's rotted them. Not because being moral is bad, but because anything other than God cannot be our identity. And when we ask anything other than God to be our ultimate identity, if that thing gives us purpose and meaning and value, it will disintegrate under the weight that we put it on. Ultimately, it won't save us. And then it will lead to hell now. If we ask anything other than God to be our identity, it will fail us and it will lead us into destruction and evil because of that failure. It will lead us to doing the right thing for the wrong reason, which isn't something we like to accept, is it? That that, that we can do the right thing for the wrong reason and that that can bring evil into the world, that that can bring destruction, that that can bring hell now that we could be thinking we are doing the right thing, advancing the kingdom, but we don't realize we're advancing the wrong kingdom. It's a scary thought. Not because we're doing the wrong thing, but because our reasons are wrong and it's our heart that God judges, not our actions. But if we live in colliding worlds, I want to ask what kingdom we're establishing because it's not just what we do, it's why we are doing it. Everyone can see what we do. Only you know why you're doing it. We all know people who looked like they were doing the right thing, but it turned out their lives were rotting from the inside out, right? And when we obsess over this Renaissance art depiction of a future hell, I think we miss most of Jesus' teachings on the topic, that eternity is simply us and our God. The question then is, what have we made our God? Timothy Keller puts it this way. He says, hell is just a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God going on forever. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he he kind of expands on this, and this is one of my favorite quotes in the world. Uh, he, He says this, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins at all costs and give them a fresh start? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, They will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that is what he does. That's what hell is. There are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. It's a quote you have to read multiple times, and every time I read it, something fresh just hits me in my gut. But, but I believe that this is the reason why Abraham says sending Lazarus won't help. This is the reason when the rich man says, I've got five brothers, he's kind of abdicating responsibility. But if we, if we read it in the most generous way, if he's being selfless and saying, oh, you know, I'm done, but my brothers, please send Lazarus back to tell my brothers about where they're heading. If, if we read it as that, then, then the reason that Abraham says sending Lazarus back wouldn't help is because, sure, they'd be amazed at first, right? If we saw someone who we knew was dead come back from the dead, who agrees you'd be a little bit amazed? Yeah, I hope we're not too hard to impress. I'd be like, wow, that's pretty cool. How'd you do that? Second question would be like, what's it like on the other side? 
Right? And, and let's say Lazarus told them. Let's say Lazarus said, oh man, your, your brother is, is in hell. And if you keep on going the way that he's been going, you're going to end up in the same place. If, if he approached it with, with a fear-based response, sure, at first they'd be afraid. And we've had lots of attempts to scare people out of hell. There's been plenty of sermons in which we go into excruciating detail about, oh, and this might happen, and this might happen, and, and here's how you can read these things, and, and, and applying a whole lot of potential metaphor and literal ways to try and scare people in a response. But, but Abraham is saying that fear, fear of hell, fear of damnation will never change the fundamental structure of your heart, that it won't work. That ironically, fear of hell will not actually keep you out of it, because then God just becomes a means to an end. Right then we, we just become the Pharisees 2.0, whitewashed tombs in which we're following God, we're doing the right thing, not because of a love of who He is, not because we've embraced Him, not because we're in a relationship, but because we see it as a necessary exchange to get us into the place that we want to go, or maybe more importantly, to avoid the place we don't want to go. Become the Pharisees 2.0, insistent on, oh, is, is this sin? Do I do this? How do I live in this way? Avoiding hell at all costs without actually entering into a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Which is why Jesus points again and again to Gehenna. Right? Asking, how are we living now? Asking, are we full of, we'll go to the next slide, are we full of pride or anger? Are you full of fear? Are you full of hypocrisy? Are you living in such a way now that we're bringing more evil into the world? If we are establishing hell here and now, why would we think our eternity would be any different? Right? Could it be that, that what, if the, what if God simply handed the rich man over to the hell he'd established on earth? I'll get the keys up. I'm, I'm almost done. And we're saying, Jono, please don't be almost done. I'm very confused. I, I, I'll, I'll land this. I hope. <laughs> but see, see, here's the thing. Jesus speaks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And, and he doesn't do it because he's wanting us to live from fear. He speaks about it from love. He's saying, this is what I saved you from. This is, this is what is not waiting for you if you have faith in me. And he's saying, don't wait to embrace heaven. Don't wait to embrace the kingdom. It's now. And that can be hard to hear because it's easier to break things than it is to mend which is why He invites us to live from His strength, His victory, and His grace by His mercy. So now I get that this sermon has, has been wide-ranging, right? We've, we've spoken about definitions, Sheol, Tartarus, Hades, Gehenna. Why have we spoken a bit about why do we think about what we think about when we think about hell, and is that helpful? We've spoken about this idea of the rich man and Lazarus, that, that what we establish on earth has divine implications. But, but I want to leave you with this, right? To conclude, if, if you take nothing else away from today, then remember this. To conclude, I think that it would benefit us and be more in line with Jesus. Put on the next slide. If we think of hell as less fire, brimstone, and little red men, and more anything that we have put in God's place failing us again and again for eternity. If we think of our faith less as a ticket out of hell and more as an invitation to work with Jesus to bring heaven to earth. And that if we make our faith only about avoiding hell, that we risk becoming whitewashed tombs, pretty outside, dead inside. 
Can I say that to you again just one more time? Because I believe if we can capture something of this, it changes the way that we see hell, which is important for us, but even more so it's important for our friends and family. There's something in us starts to build where we go, ah, oh, I think that I'm wanting to share the gospel with you because maybe there's, there's some fire and maybe there's some eternal torment and I don't know if we could start to realize that it's about helping them to embrace something more rather than avoiding something less. I believe that that would ignite the right type of fire in our heart. Not a fire of fear, but a fire of love that says we're not about avoiding hell, we're about establishing heaven. And if we can establish heaven here and now, then one day when that day comes and that of heaven touches earth and all is made right again, we will step into something familiar. That we will encounter our Savior and it won't be like, oh wow, this is different, but like, oh, I saw a taste of this that we could, we could meet people, we could, we could fish for people, as the Bible would tell us, not with scare tactics, but by presenting the most compelling case that the kingdom of heaven is here and now, that God loves them, and that if they could encounter this love, it would transform their hearts in such a way that fear could never do. See, I believe one more time to conclude, it would benefit us and be more in line with Jesus if we would think of hell as less fire, brimstone, little red men, and more anything that we have put in God's place, failing us again and again. If we could think of our faith as less a ticket out of hell and more an invitation to work with Jesus to bring heaven to earth. And that if we make our faith only about avoiding hell, we risk becoming whitewashed tombs. Pretty outside, dead inside, doing the right thing for the wrong reasons and being surprised by the results. See, friends, it's not about earning our way into heaven. We literally cannot do that. It's not about appeasing God. We cannot earn His appeasement. Jesus has done that for us, but it's also not about empty words. It's about believing. Like Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 10, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. See, we live in colliding worlds. We collide with eternity every day. What we do here and now matters. It's of eternal significance. We don't earn salvation, but we also don't just say some magic words. It's through faith by grace. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.